Reading from Revelation chapter 4, uh, from verse 1 through to Revelation chapter uh, 5, verse 7. After, look, after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. And the first voice that I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the throne sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. And four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes around and inside, and each uh, day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and, our, and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I, saw, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is, worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one, in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or even, look in, uh, or even to look in it. And I wept, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Uh, and he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Now this morning we are examining uh, chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, of the book of Revelation. And th I'm conscious of the fact that Herman preached on this same passage a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that's coincidental. <laughs> um, I'm hoping I do a, a good job of this. It's not because I think Herman's done a terrible job and I've got to fix what he said. It's not it at all. Uh, we are just kind of getting towards the end of our Garden to Garden City series. And... And so it's a good place for us now to think about what's coming next. Uh, you know, in, in the big picture story that the Bible is telling, what is the future like? And so 
It's also a good idea for us to think now of what the story has been so far. So we know that in the beginning God created the world, he ordered it, it was all very good, and very soon afterwards uh, humans decided that they didn't want to follow God's way, and so sin enters the world through, uh, through Adam and Eve. And so all, all of the world was actually broken through that. So sin broke everything. It broke the order in creation, it plunged the world into a kind of spiritual darkness, it broke our own personal relationships with God. Uh, we who are created to worship Him couldn't really do that uh, in fullness. Um, but God, recognizing the problem, promises immediately to one day send a solution where this sin problem will no longer be uh, a problem. And so the whole rest of Scripture is about this promised solution. And as we traveled through the big picture story, we learn more and more about, um, about what the solution's like. God reveals, for example, that it's going to come through Abram's offspring. It's going to be through the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were going to be these bearers of the promise that were supposed to shine out God's light to the world, but they end up failing again and again. And we realize that it's not Israel as a people who are the solution. Maybe it's their mighty leaders. And so we see Moses and, and he's this great deliverer that delivers Israel out of slavery in Egypt, but he fails and it's not him. And it's not the judges that come after him who rule Israel because they just get worse and worse as time progresses and they fail. And so the Bible tells us that Israel needs a king. And so maybe it's one of the kings and the kings come and even the greatest king of Israel, uh, King David, uh, he fails as well, a man after God's own heart, and yet he also sins greatly. It's not the prophets because no one listened to them. And one day someone would come who's better than the priests who also wander their own way. And so ultimately in the story, Jesus comes and he bursts onto the scene and he is the saviour we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. But he wins not as a conquering warrior, he wins ultimately by dying on the cross, taking our sins on his shoulders and solving our own personal sin problem uh, that we've been carrying since the beginning of the world. And so the message of him quickly spreads through the known world, as it were, uh, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of where we're up to uh, as, as a people. And so now we're looking at what is next? What, where is this story going? How is it going to end? And as we'll see, um, probably after Christmas, early in the new year, the story ends with God being with his people. Finally, that chasm of separation that sin caused completely gone in its fullness. But before we see that picture, uh, we have to think about where God and his people are today. Uh, I mean, and, and what does that mean for us? In some ways, we can become so used to our salvation, our, uh, our freedom we have in Christ, that we can forget about who God is and what his reality is like right now, how awesome he is, how worthy of praise. And so that's what we want to focus on this morning, looking at, at God today as we see in this picture of Revelation 4 and 5. And we'll see two things. God is the supreme ruler who is worthy of praise because he's created this wonderful universe. And, and um, Jesus, the Lamb, is worthy of praise because he's the one who saves God's people. And so those are the two things I want to just focus on this morning. So firstly then, 
We are to worship God as the supreme ruler who created all things. Now, when you read Revelation, particularly these two chapters, you have to come away with a sense of the power of God, his bigness, his otherness, his amazingness. There's a sense of awe that has to wash over us for who God is. And these chapters, chapter 4 and 5, are a kind of uh, twofold case for why we should worship God. And chapter 4 tells us that we should worship God because he's the creator of all there is. And if we had to learn nothing else from today's message, if we take nothing else away, we need to learn at least this, that God is to be worshipped because he created the world and he rules over it. And so what do we see about God in chapter 4? Well, John has been carried off into heaven. And, and as we read this, it's like there's a, like a portal or a, or a doorway that's been opened into the spiritual realm that, that John travels through. It's not so much that heaven and earth are separated uh, by this physical chasm. It's, it's rather that he, uh, it's like he's looking through a, through a doorway or through a window into another world. And, and John is invited to step through this doorway and enter into heaven's throne room as it is today. And John sees in this heavenly throne room God in his council chamber, in his, in his heavenly throne room. And on the throne, um, there's a dog. Uh, if someone can maybe just take the dog and shut the outside doors or something, that would be good. So like the dog has entered into this throne room, uh, John enters into God's throne room and he steps into this council chamber and there are these thrones. There are um, 24 thrones that almost certainly represent the 12 tribes of Israel, as the Old Testament people of God, and the 12 tribes of the New Testament church of God. And so God is sitting there, but there are these sub-thrones around him. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because God is the ultimate ruler, but he has given co-rulership with Christ to the Old and the New Testament church of God. Now, these people are the embodiment of a perfected people. They are wearing these white robes, which is a, which is a picture that they have been washed clean from their sin. They are pure now, and that's why they can be with God. And they have these crowns on their heads which show that they are part of the royal priesthood that God has entered his redeemed people into. And God has given them these crowns to rule with him. He has given them, quite literally, their crowning glory. And these people have authority over things. We don't know exactly what those things are, but they have authority over things. And friends, we have to realize that this is the reality of us believers that have died today. That's where we are. If we were dead today, that's where we would be. We are included in that group of people around God's throne. That throne room scene isn't, strictly speaking, somewhere far in the future. Actually, what we're looking at here is what, uh, what it's like in God's throne room today. Now, the rest of Revelation lays out what the future ultimately comes. When God, when Jesus comes back and he comes to judge the world, that's what the rest of the book of Revelation talks about. But this passage is about what it's like today in heaven for God's people. 
And so we'll be looking at that future vision in a little while. But what John sees here is the picture of reality today. And what he sees is that God's redeemed people, his saved people, are really there in heaven with him today, ruling with him. And if we were to die before Jesus comes back, this will be our reality. We will be there with God also. Now, what's it like? We see, uh, we see these other things in the throne room with God's people. There are these four creatures. There's an ox and a human and an eagle and a lion. And this is meant to remind us, um, if, if we've got our Old Testament hats on, there's a, uh, the book of Ezekiel has a very similar kind of picture of God's, uh, of God's throne room. And this is supposed to give us a sense of the fulfillment of God saving his people. So um, I have to digress here, otherwise this doesn't make sense. So just stick with me. In Ezekiel, there is, um, Ezekiel is giving a prophecy to God's people living in Babylon. So they're in exile. They've been taken away because they've been uh, conquered by the Babylonians. And so God gives Ezekiel this vision that shows them that God is with them in exile, but that he is still there redeeming his people. He's still fighting for them. Uh, and he will one day redeem them fully. Now what's happening here then in John chapter 4 is that we as a reader are meant to understand that what we see here is that God is with his people and he has fulfilled that promise he made back in Ezekiel. We are meant to be reminded that God is with his people still today, whether they are suffering like Ezekiel's people did in Babylon or not, God continues to redeem his people. And these four creatures are um, a symbol of all that God has created. And so the first is the lion. The lion is the king of the jungle, you know. He's the mighty animal who can destroy you with a smack of his paw. And he represents all the kind of living creatures on earth. The second is the ox, which is the king of the domesticated animals, if you will. And he represents um, kind of the farming and agrarian society. The ox is the animal that provides food for people and labor and, and helps them uh, be fed uh, as, as a farm help. And the third creature is a human being, which is, well, like a human being, which is the, the creature that God has created to rule over the rest of the world. It's the pinnacle of God's creation. And the last creature is the eagle, which is the king of the birds, if you like. Um, you know, we don't tend to, uh, when, we, when we write songs like Bette Midler sings, you know, the, the wind beneath my wings, what we're imagining is, is a picture of an eagle. She says she can fly higher than an eagle. We don't talk about the vulture as the king of the birds or the cockatoo, you know. It's always the eagle. They are the majestic, the majestic birds. And so what's happening is that in the throne room is God with his elders and there are these other creatures around which represent all of creation, all the living things in creation. Having said that, what we're supposed to see is that God has created all of these things. Because, uh, all of these things are worshipping God because he is worthy. All of these things worship God because he is worthy to be praised through the power that he has shown by creating all of these amazing things. The lion, the ox, the human, the eagle, they stand before God both day and night without rest and they praise him and they say, holy, 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 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Why? Because he has created all things. Friends, that's what you and I, as part of God's creation, are meant to do. We are made to worship God. And when things are back in the order that God has made them, when we are restored through Christ, that's what we do. All creation sings to God's glory because of his holiness, his power and his awe. That's what God expects from us. Now we know this because we can see what the elders are doing in the, in the scene in heaven. They show us what, uh, I guess, the kind of a representative of what we are to do as God's people. Now they're sitting on these sub-thrones as, um, uh, as co-rulers with, with Christ. And what happens? What do they do? Well, our text tells us that whenever the creatures give glory and honor and thanks to God who are sitting on the throne... The 24 elders fall down in front of the one sitting on the throne and they worship him. And they say, uh, they worship the one who lives forever. And they throw down their crowns in front of the throne and they say, Lord our God, you deserve glory and honor and power because you've created all things. That is what we are to live for. That's what we were made for. And actually, if our lives feel meaningless, it's because we haven't been doing this. We haven't been living our purpose, if you like. We haven't been doing this kind of stuff. We haven't been giving glory to God for the things that he has given us. We haven't been casting our crowns and giving God the glory for what he created us to do. Now, in the Greek, the word for glory is doxa. In Hebrew, the word is kavod. They both mean heavy or substantial, weighty. There's a weight to God. He has a substantialness to him. He matters. He has gravity, if you like. And when we come before him, we are to recognize his weightiness and his gravity his opinion has to have weight over our lives. It is to be substantial in our eyes. We were made to make God weighty to the world around us. That's what it means to glorify God. We should take him seriously and live for him seriously. And that's what the elders in this picture actually end up doing. God gives them these crowning glories, these crowns. He says, welcome into heaven, here's your crown. Welcome into heaven, here's your crown. And then they sit down and they co-rule with him. But what do they do with these crowns that he's given them? They throw it down at his feet saying, actually God, you deserve the glory and the honor and the power because you created all things. And that applies to us today in this world too. When we think of our crown of glory, what is it? It's our achievements, isn't it? What's your crowning glory? Maybe it's something that makes you stand out in the world. Maybe it's some great accomplishment that you've accomplished. Maybe it's um, a degree at university or a, or a position you hold in your company or 
the sway you hold within the family, a job you can be proud of, uh, that you've applied yourself in some way and succeeded. And these are things that give us glory. But when we come into God's presence as He is, do you see what happens to these things? Our gifts, our achievements, our glories, what happens to them is we throw them down at God's feet. And we say, actually, I'm not worthy, you're worthy. All the things that we have in this life is ultimately a gift from Him anyway. So we throw down our crowns before Him. How well, friend, do you go at throwing your crown before the King? Casting your crown in glory and saying, actually in front of God's glory, this is nothing really, something to be thrown away. I think for most of us it's a little bit difficult because we haven't died and we haven't been completely redeemed yet. We still actually want in and of ourselves that authority, that crown over our own lives. We want to be able to say, look at what I did. It's because of my hard work. I'm so wonderful. We want to be able to say, that actually is my crown and I'm hanging on to it. And that's the problem we've had since the very beginning. That's what Adam and Eve wanted to do. They said, we want to be like God. We, we want his glory. We want to sit on that throne. We want our glory ourselves. We want the crown. We want it because uh, we want to feel better about ourselves. We actually don't want to live under God's authority. And so how do we deal with that on this side of heaven? How do we actually live in light of God's glory? Well, chapter 5 actually gives us the answer. So we are to worship God because he's the creator and he's so wonderful and all those sorts of things. But we recognize that that's difficult for us and we actually can't. So how do we do it? Chapter 5 gives us the answer. From verse 1. Then I saw at the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on it on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I wept, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look in it. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, for the Lion of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, from the root of David, has conquered, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God sent into the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So there's something really interesting that happens here in Revelation chapter 5. And what happens is probably one of the most dramatic parts in all of Scripture, certainly in the book of Revelation. So what is it that John sees? God is there, seated on the throne. He has a scroll. Now the scroll is God's secret plan for how to finally and ultimately fix the world. So we've seen part of God's plan already has been to send Jesus to die for the sins of his people. But we live in a now and a not yet time, don't we? The world is, we are redeemed but not fully. 
sin is taken care of, but kind of not completely. There's still something to come. And so that's what's on the scroll. How is God finally going to deal with sin? It is God's secret plan for history. God has committed himself to fixing the sin problem way back in Genesis 3. Uh, and, uh, and because of sin, that, uh, that plan, we don't know what that is. And so God says, I will redeem it, I will fix them. But we don't quite know what the full picture is like. And so suffering is still in the world, sin is still in the world, disease is still in the world, even though Jesus has come. So how is the world finally going to be solved? That's what's in the scroll. God has promised to send a solution, but no one can be found. Every human being is, is broken, is sinful. Every, everyone is part of the problem. No one is worthy to open this scroll and figure out how can this finally bring the world to, to the right place it's supposed to be in. The strong angel says in a, vo- a voice, uh, you know, who is ready? Who can, who can open the scroll? God has this perfect plan. It's going to fix the world. It's going to be amazing. But who's worthy to open the scroll? Who of us are without sin? Who is right with God and can stand before him and unroll his perfect plan? There is no one. No one is worthy to open the scroll. I'm not worthy because I was there in the crowd yelling crucify when Jesus was being crucified. And you're not worthy to open the scroll because you were right back there in the Garden of Eden choosing the fruit instead of choosing God. All of us have a problem. None of us are worthy to open the scroll. So what then? How can the world be fixed? Who can open the scroll? That's the picture. Okay? And so John, understanding the proportions, the the, the gigantic proportions of this tragedy, understanding how tragic and sad it is that the world actually can't be fixed. Because God has a plan. The plan is right there, but no one can open the scroll what does he do? He bursts into tears. There's a great tragedy. The world needs fixing. We need fixing. The grand story the Bible has been telling needs a conclusion and everyone who steps forward to come and be the solution fails. Adam and Eve is not worthy. They bring sin into the world. Moses isn't worthy. He wants to glorify himself instead of God. The judges aren't worthy, they're just worse one after the other. King David, a man after God's own heart, he's not worthy because he runs off with a rooftop girl. The scroll has the final solution and no one is worthy. No one can open it. What a tragedy. Because John knows without opening this scroll of what ultimately ends up being judgment. Without opening the scroll, the end of suffering will never come. The world will continue to live in this tension of now and not yet. And it moves him to tears. Then one of the elders speaks up and says, don't cry, because look, there is one There is one who is worthy. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah, from the root of Jesse. He has won the victory. He is the one who can open the scroll and and undo the seven seals. There is one who has walked through life and has not succumbed to sin. 
who actually hasn't contributed to the problem and caused further death to enter into the world. And here he is. Look. And there was no one who read this in the New Testament times who would have missed what John was saying here. The line of Judah from the root of David. These are, these are terms used exclusively of the Messiah. The great coming king who had been promised and prophesied was finally here. Here is the line of Judah, the, the Messiah who has come to fight a great battle for God's people and to set them free. And so John turns around and he sees he expects to see a great lion standing there, a great warrior who would defeat evil and finally set the people free. And so he turns to see the lion, and instead of a lion, he sees just a slaughtered lamb. Not a magnificent beast, but a, a weak little lamb, a slaughtered lamb. But it's the slaughtered lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. And these are two vastly different animals, aren't they? A lion is a fighter of a beast. He uses his might and his power and his majesty to defeat his enemies. His roar instills fear and trembling. He stands majestic. And then there's the lamb, the little lamb. The animal who is consumed, actually, by the predators. You know, we eat the lamb... And the lion eats us. Vastly different animals. And yet here John is kind of asked by God to keep these two images in mind at once. Because that's the great irony, the plot twist at the end of the story. That the lion is the lamb. The great victory has been won, but it's not a political victory or a power victory or a military victory or a, a lionish victory. No, in God's glory and divine wisdom, the victory is won by dying, like a lamb. The victory is won by surrender. The victory is won where the one who has all the power and the might and the ability to destroy sacrifices himself and dies instead, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And when Jesus dies... Everyone thought that was it. Evil had won. But ultimately it was precisely in losing his life, in paying the price for death, even though he has lived a life free from sin, even though he's worthy of opening the scroll. He loses his life. It's precisely because he chooses to do that that Jesus wins the war. He loses the battle but wins the war. And that, friends, is why... We cast our crowns. We throw them in front of the throne. The more we are captured by that picture, the more we understand that the lion is the lamb, the more we understand what Jesus has done on the cross, the less we want to keep our crowns for ourselves and fight the battle for ourselves. Because Jesus is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And so then how do we respond? Having seen that, how do we respond? Uh, how, how do we relate to the fact that Jesus is the one who is worthy? Well, actually, the next three verses give us the answer. In verse 11, which we haven't read, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and the elders, and their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. 
They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped him. That is our response. When we see that the lion is the lamb, that ultimately this is our reality, not just in the future, but actually today, then we will cast our crowns in front of him and say, with our friends in heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honour and power and glory forever and ever. Will you come and bow down and worship him? Let's pray. Lord, you give us a picture, a glimpse of what's going on in heaven right now, even as we sit here this morning, through this text in Revelation. And what a gift it is to be able to have this insight and to kind of peer through the the spiritual window, if you like, into heaven. And what we see is this awesome sight of your people and all creation bowing before you, giving glory and worship and honour to you, firstly for creating, uh, for, for just creating the creation, but secondly for what you did on the cross. Lord, let our hearts be captured by this picture of, uh, of your glory. May it stir us too to cast our crowns before you, never claiming power and glory for ourselves, but giving it all back to you as the one who gave us all things. And so we pray that you will help us to live in the light of all that you have done and also in light of what you will still do. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.